Chapter Eight, Part Four of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orzy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bag of Sand, Part Four. A year went by after the discovery of the mysterious tragedy, and I can assure you that our fellows at the yard had one of the toughest jobs in connection with the case that ever fell to their lot. Just think of all the contradictions which met them at every turn. Firstly, the disappearance of Miss Violet. No sooner had the women in the Dunstan household roused themselves sufficiently from their horror at the terrible discovery which they had just made, than they were confronted with another almost equally awful fact, awful, of course, because of its connection with the primary tragedy. Miss Violet Frostwick had gone. Her room was empty. Her bed had not been slept in. She herself had been seen by the cook, Mrs. Kennett, stealing out of the house at the dead of night. To connect the pretty, dainty young girl even remotely with a crime so hideous, so callous as the deliberate murder of an old woman, who had been as a mother to her, seemed absolutely out of the question. And by tacit consent the four women, who now remained in the desolate and gloom-laden house at Eaton Terrace, forbore to mention Miss Violet Frostwick's name, either to police or doctor. Both of these, of course, had been summoned immediately, Miss Cruikshank sending Mary to the police station, and thence to Dr. Falwell in Eaton Square, whilst Jane went off in a cab to fetch Mr. Nicholas Jones, who, fortunately, had not yet left for his place of business. The doctors and the police inspectors first thought, on examining the mise-en-scene of the terrible tragedy, was that Mrs. Dunstan had committed suicide. It was practically impossible to imagine that a woman in full possession of health and strength would allow a piece of india-rubber piping to be fixed between her teeth, and would, without a struggle, continue to inhale the poisonous fumes which would mean certain death yet there were no marks of injury upon the body, nothing to show how sufficient unconsciousness had been produced in the victim to permit the miscreant completing his awesome deed. But the theory of suicide set up by Dr. Falwell was promptly refuted by the most cursory examination of the room. Though the drawers were found closed, they had obviously been turned over, as if the murderer had been in search either of money or papers, or the key of the safe. The latter, on investigation, was found to be open, whilst the key lay on the floor close by. A brief examination of the safe revealed the fact that the tin boxes must have been ransacked, for they contained neither money nor important papers now, whilst the gold and platinum settings of necklaces, bracelets, and a tiara showed that the stones, which, as Mr. Nicholas Jones subsequently averred, were of considerable value, had been carefully, if somewhat clumsily, taken out by obvious inexperienced hands." On the whole, therefore, appearances suggested deliberate, systematic, and very leisurely robbery, which wholly contradicted the theory of suicide. Then, suddenly, the name of Miss Frostwick was mentioned. Who first brought it on the tapis, no one subsequently could say. But in a moment, the whole story of the young girl's engagement to Mr. Athol, in defiance of her aunt's wishes, the quarrel of the night before, and the final disappearance of both young people from the house during the small hours of the morning, was dragged from the four unwilling witnesses by the able police inspector. Nay, more, one very unpleasant little circumstance was detailed by one of the maids, and corroborated by Miss Cruikshank. It seems that when the latter took up the champagne to Mrs. Dunstan, the old lady desired Miss Violet to come to her room. Mary, the housemaid, was on the stairs, when she saw the young girl, still dressed in her evening gown of white chiffon, her eyes still swollen with tears, knocking at her aunt's door. The police inspector was busy taking notes, already building up in his mind a simple, 
a very sensational case against Violet Frostwick, when Mrs. Kennett promptly upset all his calculations. Miss Violet could have had nothing to do with the murder of her aunt, seeing that Miss Dunstan was alive and actually spoke to the cook when the latter knocked at her bedroom door after she had seen the young girl walk out of the house. Then came the question of Mr. Athol, but, if you remember, it was quite impossible even to begin to build up a case against the young man. His own statement that he left the house at about midnight, having totally forgotten to rouse the cook when he did so, was amply corroborated from every side. The cabman who took him up to the corner of Eaton Terrace at 11.50 p.m. was one witness in his favor. His landlady at his rooms in German Street, who let him in since he had mislaid his latch-key, and who took him up some tea at seven o'clock the next morning, was another. Whilst, when Mary saw Miss Violet going into her aunt's room, the clock at St. Peter's, Eaton Square, was just striking twelve. I dare say you think I ought by now to have mentioned the charwoman, Mrs. Thomas, who represented the final, most complete, most hopeless contradiction in this remarkable case. Mrs. Thomas was seen by Mary, the housemaid, at half-past six o'clock in the morning, coming down from the upper floors, where she had no business to be, and carrying the bag of sand used for strewing over the slippery front-door steps. The bag of sand, of course, was always kept in the area. The moment that the bag of sand was mentioned, Dr. Falwell gave a curious gasp. Here, at least, was the solution to one mystery. The victim had been stunned, while still in bed, by a blow on the head dealt with that bag of sand, and while she was unconscious, the callous miscreant had robbed her and finally asphyxiated her with the gas-fumes. Where was the woman who, at half-past six in the morning, was seen in possession of the silent instrument of death? Mrs. Thomas had disappeared. The last that was then, or ever, has been seen of her, was when she passed underneath the dim light of a bypass on the landing, as if tired out with the weight which she was carrying. Since then, as you know, the police have been unswerving in their efforts to find Mrs. Thomas. The address which she had given in St. Peter's Mews was found to be false. No one of that name or appearance had ever been seen there. The woman who was supposed to have sent her with a letter of recommendation to Mrs. Dunstan knew nothing of her. She swore that she had never sent anyone with a letter to Mrs. Dunstan. She gave up her work there one day, because she found it too hard at such an early hour in the morning, but she never heard anything more from her late employer after that. Strange, wasn't it, that two people should have disappeared out of that house on the same memorable night? Of course you will remember the tremendous sensation that was caused some twenty-four hours later, when it transpired that the young person who had thrown herself into the river from Waterloo Bridge on that same eventful morning, and whose body was subsequently recovered and conveyed to the Thames police station, was identified as Miss Violet Frostwick, the niece of the lady who had been murdered in her own house in Eaton Terrace. Neither money nor diamonds were found on poor Miss Violet. She had herself given the most complete proof that she, at least, had no hand in robbing or killing Mrs. Dunstan. The public wondered why she took her aunt's wrath and her probable disinheritance so fearfully to heart and sympathized with Mr. David Athol for the terribly sad loss which he had sustained. But Mrs. Thomas, the charwoman, had not yet been found. End of Part 4 of The Bag of Sand